friends, and welcome to the History Cash Podcast. Whether you're here for the first time or back again, thank you for tuning in. I've got some particularly compelling history for you today. I feel like the last episode, which was on the famous sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, was a bit heavy. So we're covering some things that are a little more lighthearted this time and won't make you want to cry at the end as much. If you like quadrupeds, people who do stupid things, world wars, daredevil cats, or random obscure histories that should totally be mainstream, this episode is definitely for you. So grab yourself a nice cup of whatever it is you fancy for time traveling, plug in your brain, and get ready to hit rewind until you head all the way back to a time before podcasts even existed. It's a weird place, but there's a goat there you just have to meet. This week, we're on our way to meet some of the animals and some of the wonderful, brave weirdos that helped shape our history. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. When Billy came home from World War I, he came back a hero. He had been a member of the 5th Canadian Battalion, known as the Fighting Fifth, an expeditionary force that saw action in some of the Great War's most famous and horrendous battles. Billy wore the chevrons of a sergeant and stripes for wounds received and services rendered. Dangling from his uniform were the Mons Star, the General Service Medal, and the Victory Medal. But Billy didn't seem to care much for accolades. Most goats don't. <laughs> it might seem odd that a goat went to war in 1914, but animals served alongside their human companions throughout the entire war. Animals have been joining us in battle for thousands of years. In World War I alone, 16 million animals served between 1914 and 1918. Most of these were horses, which helped carry supplies or served in cavalry forces. Dogs were used to hunt for rats in trenches, carried messages or supplies to wounded soldiers, or served as mercy dogs, staying with dying soldiers to keep them company. 100,000 pigeons served delivering messages behind enemy lines. One South African unit had a baboon named Jackie who had particularly sharp hearing and would tug on the sleeves of the soldiers when he detected enemy advances. Even slugs were used as they would squirm when exposed to mustard gas in quantities smaller than any human could detect. This allowed the human soldiers to grab their gas masks before it reached a lethal level. Camels, donkeys, pigs, goats, elephants, horses, dogs, basically any species that has had anything to do with us humans has served with us in war in some way at some point within the last few thousand years. And in 1914, Billy the Goat became one of these animals that joined us on the front. On August 23rd, 1914, a train full of newly recruited soldiers that made up the 5th Western Cavalry Expeditionary Force was chugging its way from Western Canada to Valcartier Camp in Quebec. 
The soldiers were young, eager, probably hiding their apprehension, many never having seen anything other than the vast frontiers of Canada, not knowing they were on the threshold of a war that would claim nearly 40 million human lives, including some of theirs. The train stopped in Saskatchewan on its way to Quebec at a town called Broadview. At the same time the train pulled up into the station, a young girl named Daisy Kerwain was leading her goat, Billy, pulling a small cart. Daisy's family ran the jewelry store in Broadview, and she must have been a kind girl, because when the soldiers of the Fighting Fifth asked her if they could take her goat with them to be their mascot, she agreed. So Billy was unhitched from his cart and loaded onto the train, where he rode the remaining 2,952 kilometers, or 1,834 miles, from Broadview to Valcartier Camp. This must have been a confusing and probably jarring experience for a goat that was used to garden vegetables, dirt roads, young Daisy, and the gentle pace of her cart. But Billy's adventure was just beginning. Not long after the fifth arrived in Valcartier Camp, they boarded the SS Lapland, crossed the Atlantic by sea, and arrived at Lark Hill Camp in England in October of 1914, and they brought Billy with them. The soldiers of the Fighting Fifth grew to genuinely love Billy the Goat, and over the long, intense few months of training, he became an inseparable part of the battalion. Meanwhile, the war was getting bigger, bloodier, creeping its way across Europe in a dark wave made of artillery, muddy trenches, poisonous gas, and bodies. And it was time for the Fifth to be thrown into it. The unit received their orders. They were heading to France by train, and no regimental mascots were allowed to accompany them. They were ordered to leave Billy behind. But the soldiers could not part with Billy. He was one of them, and they quickly came up with a clever solution to keep him. They purchased a large crate of oranges, sold them to other soldiers hungry for some tasty fruit, and when the crate was empty, they placed Billy inside packed the crate onto the train, and smuggled Billy to France, where they all arrived together in February of 1915. The trenches on the front, turns out, were not a fitting environment for a goat, and Billy was having a hard time adjusting. There was some concern among the officers when some important papers went missing from the orderly room. Spies were a real threat to Allied forces. But after some searching, what was left of the papers were found, chewed and tattered, in Billy's quarters. When it was discovered that Billy was the culprit, he was arrested. He was eventually released and resumed his duties as a mascot. But less than a month later, Billy charged, head down, horns out, at one of his superior officers. So, he was arrested again. <laughs> At this point, some of the soldiers were having second thoughts about Billy, and he may well have been having second thoughts about them. This was a goat. Goats are delightful, no doubt, but they can also be stubborn, a bit fussy, and always willing to eat things they're not supposed to be eating. 
We had a couple goats when I was a kid. When my parents would leave the house, my little sister and I would sneak them inside and laugh as we watched them running up and down the stairs. But they would also butt us when we weren't looking and chew our clothes even when we were in them. I can't imagine that in the chaos of World War I, Billy wasn't raising an adorable goaty ruckus wherever he could. But when things grew more violent, the fighting became more frequent, and the war grew into a horrific global struggle, Billy the Goat became a war hero. He showed bravery during the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, the first planned offensive strike on the German trench system on the Western Front, and was promoted to the rank of sergeant. Billy was with the 5th during the Second Battle of Ypres, Canada's first major battle in the war, and the first battle where gas was used against Allied troops on the Western Front. German forces released over 5,700 canisters containing 168 tons of chlorine gas at sunrise on April 22, 1915. The greenish-yellow fog of poison rolled across the German lines into the trenches, and by the end of the battle, 69,000 Allied troops had been lost. Amid the gas clouds, the machine gun fire, and the bayonet charges, Billy had gone missing, and his companions were worried he had perished. The soldiers that had died from the chlorine gas had died of asphyxiation, those still alive were experiencing painful burning in their throats, confusion, fits of coughing, and even temporary blindness. Billy had been gassed too, and probably was experiencing these same symptoms. But Billy hadn't run away. When the soldiers found him, he was bleeding from a shrapnel wound and standing guard over a very nervous-looking Prussian guardsman he had trapped in a shell crater. Billy suffered from trench foot at Hill 63 the following December and was described as being shell-shocked at Hill 70 during the Battle of Vimy Ridge, a significant moment for Canadian history when all four Canadian divisions attacked German forces together, charging machine gun nests. Thousands were dead in the aftermath, but victory went to the Allies largely because of the Canadian advance. At the terribly bloody Battle of Festubert, where 16,000 Allied troops lost their lives, Billy truly became a hero. During a shell bombardment where projectiles packed with explosives were barraging Allied troops, Billy literally headbutted a sergeant and two other soldiers into a mud-filled trench right before a shell exploded. right where they had been standing, saving all three of their lives. It's been suggested that Billy knew the shell was there due to his superior hearing, but whether or not that was the case, he saved the lives of three Canadian soldiers that day. He took some shrapnel again to his neck in the process, but survived. Sergeant Billy the Goat served in the Fighting Fifth for four and a half years, he fought in France and Belgium, and besides the battles I've already mentioned, he was at the battles of Givenchy, Passchendaele, and the Somme. His list of battles and number of wounds surpassed many of his human counterparts, and it's incredible that he survived them. For his service, he was awarded the Mons Star, the General Service Medal, and the Victory Medal. When the Great War was finally over, it was time for Billy the Goat 
war hero, to go home. It wasn't easy, but the soldiers of the 5th managed to get him from France back to England, despite commanding officers wanting him to be left behind. From there, he returned with his comrades to Canada, where he ran into some issues with immigration officers who didn't want him re-entering the country. But the soldiers of the 5th worked around every obstacle thrown their way, and when they all finally returned home after a brutal four and a half years at war, Sergeant Billy the Goat led the homecoming parade. He was dressed in his own blue jacket, complete with the chevrons of a sergeant, the wound stripes of a soldier, his medals displayed proudly, and golden braided tassels hung from his horns, sparkling in the sun as he marched through the streets lined with cheering fans. After his victory march, Billy returned to the familiar dirt roads of the countryside, back to Miss Daisy Kerwin and her cart. Billy retired and lived the next few years peacefully until he finally passed away, having lived the fullest life any goat ever had. When he died, he was stuffed and mounted by a taxidermist dressed once again in his blue jacket sewn by a regimental tailor, dressed in his stripes and accolades, and placed in the historical museum in Broadview, Saskatchewan, where you can still see him today in all his Bovide glory. So, if you're ever near Saskatchewan, be sure and go give a salute to Sergeant Bill, goat and heroic veteran of the Fighting Fifth. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Podcorn. If you're a podcaster, you know how hard it can be to monetize and how much of a hassle it can be to find the right advertisers. That's where Podcorn comes in. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to all sorts of sponsorship opportunities. You get to set your own rates and choose which brands you want to represent. When I reached out to them, they got back to me in less than 24 hours with an opportunity. I know how expensive it can be to make a podcast and how long it can take to attract sponsors. Podcorn makes it easy and helps you monetize on your own terms so you can worry less about those hosting fees and get back to creating. No matter how big or how small your listener base is, if you're a podcaster, check out the Podcorn link in the show notes to start browsing your sponsorship opportunities today. Now, back to the show. There's no question that Sergeant Billy the Goat helped make history. He witnessed some of World War I's most famous battles and even saved some lives in the process. But there's another animal hero I want to talk about today. This one never saw war, never saved a life that we know of. But this cat, an orange and white tabby tucked away inside a pickle barrel, was a daredevil. Before I can get into exactly how this cat made history, I have to give you some context. And to do that, I need to talk about her owner, who was also, unsurprisingly, a daredevil. And you can't really discuss daredevils for too long without bringing up the history of Niagara Falls. This is particularly exciting for me because I get to nerd out just for a little bit about the Pleistocene, Earth's most recent ice age. This was a fascinating period in time that began about 2.6 million years ago and lasted until around 11,700 years ago. 
The Pleistocene was where we Homo sapiens evolved to become who we are now, covering nearly every part of the planet by the time it was over. By the end of the Pleistocene, we had evolved our complicated, beautiful brains, said goodbye to our Neanderthal neighbors, though we still carry some of their DNA with us now, and we saw the landscape and the life within it change. When tundra gave way to forest, much of the megafauna that had been familiar to our ancestors thinned in number and then died out completely. Woolly mammoths, cave lions, cave bears, woolly rhinos, saber-toothed cats, giant ground sloths, giant armadillos, 1,000-pound kangaroos, and scores of other animals succumbed to both the climate and probably overhunting from our ancestors. But it wasn't only animals and human migration routes that were changing, it was the ice and the water it held, too. Torrents of water were released from the melting ice. Huge ice sheets, two to three kilometers thick, some of which drained into the Niagara River. This water then made its way to the Niagara Escarpment in what is now the state of New York. This water wore the layers of rock away, moved, and eventually became Niagara Falls around 12,000 years ago. Niagara Falls is a combination of three waterfalls, the Canadian Horseshoe Falls, Bridal Veil Falls, and the American Falls. The falls are long lengthwise at 2,600 feet at Horseshoe and a combined 1,160 feet of both falls on the American side. They're just under 180 feet tall, or about 55 meters. All three waterfalls combined spew out 750,000 gallons, or 2,839,058 liters of water per second. Naturally, all this water drew a crowd, and the crowd drew a number of people who were willing to do extremely risky things for money, and fame, and the thrill of adventure. A number of these have been funambulists, or tightrope walkers. The first of these was a five-foot-tall, 140-pound man named Jean-Francois Gravelet, later known as Charles Blondin. He was born in France in 1824, and by the time he was four years old, he had discovered his calling as a tightrope walker. He made his way to Niagara Falls, where in 1859, in front of a crowd of 25,000 people, he began an attempt to walk over 1,100 feet on a hemp rope two inches thick from the American side to the Canadian side. The rope slacked in the middle, dropping to a mere 190 feet over the falls. This slack made for a wobbling, shaky walk, and most everyone there believed they were coming to watch Blondin die. One witness reported, quote, There were hundreds of people examining the rope, and with scarcely an exception, they all declared the inability of Mr. Blondin to perform the feat, the incapacity of the rope to sustain him, and that he deserved to be dashed to atoms for his desperate foolhardiness, unquote. That seems pretty harsh. But despite the incredulous crowd, Blondin, dressed in pink tights and covered in spangles, took his position at the end of the rope on the American side. Inch by inch, step by step, he made his journey over the falls in his soft-soled leather shoes, holding a 26-foot-long balancing pole made of ash in his unshaking hands. A third of the way across, he sat down on the rope, 
perched 200 feet over the river and called for the Maid of the Mist, the famous tourist boat, to bring him a bottle of wine, which he hauled up to himself with a rope. He sat there and drank his wine in front of the crowd, then stood back up and continued his journey. When he made it halfway to that dangerous spot where the slack made things particularly dangerous, Blondin ran. He ran on a two-inch thick rope all the way to the Canadian side. After that, he turned around and walked the rope a second time, this time stopping to snap a picture of the crowd. And 23 minutes later, he was back on the American side, having made daredevil history. One man told reporters, I wouldn't look at anything like that again for a million dollars. But Blondin wasn't done with Niagara. During his lifetime, he would cross the river on his rope 300 times. During those walks, he would pull off increasingly dangerous stunts and always without a safety net, and eventually without his balancing pole. He crossed at night, he crossed with his body in shackles, he crossed carrying a table and chair that he placed on the rope where he stopped to eat a piece of cake. He carried a stove, utensils, and a pan, started a fire, and cooked an omelet on his tightrope, lowering it down to the tourists to enjoy on the Maid of the Mist. And despite everyone believing he would die at some point during these stunts, Blondin lived until the age of 72, when he died of complications from diabetes. But Blondin was far from the last tightrope walker to cross Niagara. Fifteen people would cross the falls via a tightrope, spanning a time frame from 1859 to 2012. But it wasn't just funambulists risking their lives and limbs at the falls. There have been at least 16 people who have gone over the falls on purpose in some way. Five of them have died doing so. The first to die was Charles Stevens. He was an English barber known quite awesomely as the Demon Barber of Bedminster. He was an experienced daredevil having performed high dives and parachute jumps in the past. He had 11 children and supporting that big of a family as a daredevil meant having to risk more, more often. In 1920, he got his hands on a very heavy Russian oak barrel. He had straps for his arms built in, and an anvil he would tie his feet to at the bottom for ballast. This was supposed to right the barrel when it landed at the bottom of the falls. He took a small tank of oxygen, just in case, and despite his friends urging him to send the barrel over the falls empty first as a precautionary test run, Charles Stevens, barber and daredevil, loaded himself inside and took the 170-foot, 52-meter plunge over Horseshoe Falls. The anvil inside the barrel burst through the bottom upon impact, taking Charles with it. All they found of him was his severed arm, still strapped to the barrel's harness. That must have been a gruesome thing to find. But the demon barber of Bedminster was not the first to go over the falls. He was the third. Second was Bobby Leach, a man from Cornwall, England. Born in 1858, he was also an experienced daredevil and had performed for years with the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He went over the falls in an elongated steel tube. He survived the fall, but spent six months in the hospital afterwards with, among other things, a broken jaw and two broken kneecaps. 
But he recovered, spent years lecturing and making money off of his story, until one day on a tour in New Zealand, he slipped on a banana peel and died. Well, he slipped on a banana peel, broke his leg, the leg became infected with gangrene, the leg was amputated, his health declined for two months after surgery, and then he died. It was a fantastically weird end for a fantastically weird life. But Bobby Leach, though he gained great fame for his feat, was not the first person to go over the falls. That historic first goes to Annie Edson Taylor. Unlike those who later followed in her footsteps, she was not an experienced daredevil. She was a retired schoolteacher. Annie was born in Lockport, New York in 1838, one of eight children. She became a schoolteacher and married David Taylor. They had one son, who tragically died in infancy. Not long after that, David went to fight in the American Civil War, where he died in action. According to an article from the Vintage News, widowed and now alone, Annie took what she had and began traveling, looking to find somewhere to call home. First, she settled in Bay City, Michigan, where she opened the city's first dance studio. This proved not to be lucrative enough, and Annie packed up once again, heading further north to Sault Ste. Marie, with hopes of becoming a dance and music teacher. But this wasn't working for her either, so she traveled west, first to San Antonio, Texas, then Mexico City. She was bold, and she did not want to be fettered with the expectations of others. Annie never married again, and though this was a time where the world could be very hard on unmarried and independent women, Annie, according to a New York Times article from October 25, 1901, crossed the American continent eight times. There's a story out there I found in a couple sources claiming she was traveling on a stagecoach held up by Jesse James and his gang. It's reported that she had cleverly sewn about $1,000 into the hem of her dress, and she got away without losing any of it, having outsmarted the outlaws despite a gun being held to her head. There's really no sure way to know if this is true, but I really hope it is. Annie eventually returned to Bay City, Michigan, not having found the financial security she had been searching for. She mulled over what to do about her financial troubles. She was later quoted as saying, quote, I had lost $8,000 some years ago in Chattanooga, and my classes in dancing and physical culture did not bring in money fast enough to suit me. I looked around for something that nobody had ever done before as a means to make some money. The idea of Niagara came to me in an instant, and I studied the conditions fully before I embarked on the trip." Unquote. Annie was clever and daring, and right after she had the idea of tucking herself inside a barrel and flinging herself over a waterfall no one had ever survived going down, she immediately went work to make it a reality. Finding someone willing to construct the barrel she had in mind was difficult. No one really believed she would survive a trip over the falls, and no one wanted to be responsible for putting together the vehicle that would surely send this nearly 63-year-old woman to her death. Though no one knew she was 63, because she told everyone she was in her 40s. No one wanted to sponsor a woman going over the falls, and she viewed her age as just something else that was stacked against her. So, she made herself a couple decades younger. She sketched out a diagram of the barrel she had designed and made a prototype out of cardboard and string. 
She eventually did find a reluctant cooper to build her barrel. It was a pickle barrel made of white oak and held together with ten iron rings. Annie picked out each piece of wood herself. It was four and a half feet tall, three feet wide, complete with leather straps for her arms and mattress pillows to cushion the impact she would undoubtedly feel when she hit the bottom of the falls. It was cleverly fitted with a 200-pound, 90-kilo anvil at the bottom for ballast, a design copied later strikingly unsuccessfully by the demon barber of Bedminster. Thousands showed up to watch Annie go over the falls, and on October 24th, 1901, her secret 63rd birthday, Annie Edson Taylor tucked herself into her cramped pickle barrel and closed the lid. A bicycle pump was used to compress the air inside, a cork was used to seal the hole, and Annie shoved off, bobbed down the Niagara River, and plummeted at 170 feet over Horseshoe Falls. The crowd watched in wonder and terror and anticipation for 20 long minutes after her barrel hit the bottom as the rescue boats made their way to Annie, still tightly closed inside her barrel. When the lid was opened, Annie was found a bit bruised with a bloody gash on her head, but otherwise unscathed. The Boston Journal the next day described her as being mostly unharmed, but slightly hysterical because hysterical was basically the only adjective people used to describe women in Annie's day. When asked about her trip over the falls, Annie was later quoted as saying, If it was with my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon knowing it was going to blow me to pieces than make another trip over the falls. Unquote. So it wasn't very much fun. Annie would come to be known as the Queen of the Mist, for her journey. But the thing is, Annie was indeed the first human being to go over the falls in a barrel and survive, but she was not the first creature to do so. That honor goes to Lagara the Cat. Before Annie was willing to send herself over the falls, she wanted to test her barrel to make sure it would survive the impact. Unfortunately for Lagara, she also thought stuffing her cat inside would help her determine whether or not she should brave the falls herself. There was a lot more room inside the barrel for Lagara to be knocked around. It was not designed for a small cat. Even so, before Annie was willing to go over the falls herself, she placed Lagara inside the barrel and sent her careening over the falls. When Annie found her barrel at the bottom, having floated to a stop by the riverbank, she opened the lid and there was Lagara, bleeding from a small cut on her head, probably as angry and confused as any cat has ever been, but alive. The cat was the first Queen of the Mist. There is a surviving picture of Lagara that you can see today. She's sitting atop the pickle barrel as Annie poses next to her. I'll put a link to that and everything else in the show notes. In the end, things did not work out for Annie Edson Taylor as she had hoped they would. While her ride over the falls brought her some fame, it did not bring her the riches she had thought it was going to. 
Her manager, Frank M. Russell, who turned out to be a huge douchebag, stole her barrel and ran off with it, hoping to use it to bring himself riches. Annie spent much of her finances on private detectives trying to find it again, but it and Frank were both lost to history. Annie spent her remaining years posing in pictures with tourists next to a replica barrel at a souvenir stand. She wrote a short memoir titled Over the Falls that sold for 10 cents a copy. When she eventually died in poverty at the age of 82, her friends took up a collection to raise enough money to have her buried in Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls, New York, in a special section reserved just for daredevils. You can actually take a tour of the Daredevil Cemetery today and visit some of the world's most famous and interesting risk-takers who are resting forevermore beside the bold Queen of the Mist. Today, if you try to go over the falls in anything, you'll find yourself with a hefty fine and probably some jail time. But if you do go, when you're standing there looking over the edge of Horseshoe Falls, spare a moment for Annie and for Lagara, the two Queens of the Mist, who dared to make history. That brings this episode of the History Cash podcast to a close. I love these kinds of stories, stories of obscure history that are somehow better and more relatable than what we often find in the mainstream. Join me again in two weeks for an all-new episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can reach me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. The more subscribers the show gets, the more visible it becomes, and the more people learn about heroic goats and daredevil cats. If you'd like to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. As an independent podcaster, I genuinely appreciate every cent you give to this show. It helps me get research materials, pay hosting fees, and allows me to actually make this podcast. And thank you for listening today. I appreciate you taking the time to hear these stories. And I hope to see you again in two weeks for another piece of history better than fiction. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra. And until we meet again, dear wandering daredevils of podcast land, go make some history. Welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, and I'm Canadian Girl. Do you like adventures, myths, legends, and learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? Well then this is the podcast for you. Join me every two weeks as we travel around Canada, exploring things like mermaids, giants, lost gold mines, and we even stop once in a while to observe historical events and people. Come on over to the channel and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button today. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure.